It starts with the rest of us. And I'm Rob Walling. So good to have you back. And this week, we kind of do, I don't know, almost a throwback education episode where I have Ross Hudgens, who's an SEO expert, been doing it for a very long time and runs an SEO and content agency with 110 employees. And he comes on and we talk through essentially seven like of the most common do's and don'ts common mistakes, common things you should be doing as a SaaS founder. So it's not a 101 look at setting your H1 and then build links and blah, blah, blah. But it's like things that he sees people messing up or, or doing really well with. And, and we run through them. Before we dive into that, I want to remind you that if you haven't subscribed to receive the two exclusive hidden episodes, you should head to startupsfortherestofus.com. I have two never publicly released podcast episodes and accompanying PDF guides. First one is called Eight Things You Must Know When Launching Your SaaS. It's pretty prescriptive. The second one is 10 Things You Should Know As You Scale Your SaaS. Less prescriptive, of course, because as you get further in, maybe there are different paths. So enter your name and email and you'll get both those delivered to your inbox. We don't send a ton of email to the startups for the rest of us list, but we all, we actually do send a really good email that assistant producer Aaron puts together, which is show notes. It's some additional information about each episode every week and just a kind of a deeper dive into these episodes. So if you haven't checked that out, if you're not on the mailing list, I honestly, like there's some mailing lists you sign up to and you're like, ugh, I need to get off this thing. And of course, if you decide that, that that's us, it's a easy one-click unsubscribe. But what I find is that our, our retention rate is very high once people do start getting the emails. I get them myself and I look through them and kind of enjoy the, uh, the walk through these episodes. So with that, let's dig into seven SEO tips every SaaS can use with Ross Hudgens. Ross Hudgens, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. Glad to be here. Yeah, so for folks who don't know you, you're the founder and CEO of Siege Media, 110-person SEO-focused content marketing agency. You have clients like Asana, QuickBooks, and Norton. I chuckled when I said 110 people because that's a big-ass agency, man. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Thankfully, we've done it slowly over nine years, so you don't feel the anxiety. But randomly, I just, I'm on a walk, and I'm like, oh, wow, there's 110 people in this company. And gives you a little nervous breakdown on occasion. Yeah, it's like most agencies, because I know a bunch of agency owners just, you know, wherever because of MicroConf or the podcast or whatever. And and I feel like a lot of agencies are like in that 10 to 25 person range, but it's pretty rare I meet someone who in triple digit employees. It's, there's a, I will say in my experience, there's a lot more SaaS companies that make it there sometimes cause just because they're funded and they hire like crazy, but also because you know, the recurring revenue allows them to, to last that long. Whereas agencies seem to be a little more, they can be more spiky, right? Yeah, we're, we're lucky. We're kind of in a space where our space makes sense for predictability, like reoccurring content marketing search. This is something you don't really stop. And I think that's helped with retention and predictability. And we have one service line effectively. So it's like that helps scalability a little bit better. I also imagine like results have something to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't, you, you don't become a 110 person uh, org by, you know, delivering crappy, uh, crappy quality. So well, you'd be surprised, but most of the time, yeah. Fair uh, enough. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. I mean, you and I have known each other for a couple of years now since um, I believe since like Tiny Seed kicked off and, and you've been one of the most helpful mentors in terms of just practical 
tactical tips and advice directly to founders. There's there's a handful of mentors who just provide an outsized amount of give back or value, I would say. And so, you know, you and I started talking about you coming on the show and and what to cover is like, do we cover your startup story? Do we, you know, there's all these different options we could do, but really seven SEO tips for every SaaS company, I think is a pretty cool way to kick it off. This goes back to more the old school startups for the rest of us. We used to do more tactical teaching stuff. And we haven't in a long time. And so I hope that folks, you know, whether you're thinking about SEO or not, most of the tips are not very time consuming. And I get the feeling that you pulled some of these from, it could almost be renamed like seven SEO mistakes most SaaS companies make, like if you know what they're <laughs> doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's how I think about it. It's almost like, look, if you're going to go on a big SEO campaign, these are absolutely critical. If you're not, these are still good things to look at and be like, oh, if I move that from a yeah a subdomain to a subfolder, like I can get a bunch of benefit, right? So let's let's dive in. That actually kicks us off. So the first uh, SEO tip you have is put your blog in a subfolder, not a subdomain. Yeah, so that's one of the ones, to your point, I see most commonly as a mistake is people will put their site or their blog on a subdomain, most often for security issues or maybe just convenience. And you're more technical than I am. You probably know that answer better than I, but you see that a lot. And unfortunately, Google is not so great at breaking out that that's the same website. So that's kind of the mistake is that they differentiate it. So you have all these links and authority that go to your main site and all the content that's hosted on the subfolder effectively doesn't get valued the same, or sorry, the subdomain does not get valued the same. So in our results uh, and what we've seen, you can see up to like 20 to 30% lift simply by moving a subdomain to a subfolder. So ideally it would be website.com slash blog slash learn as compared to blog.website.com. And that's mainly so Google can see that these are the same thing very clearly because it goes back to the days of like Blogspot and things like that where you would have your own subdomain. I think that's one reason Google did it that way. But we've seen that. I would also suggest looking on Twitter. Rand has a great thread, which maybe we can put in show notes of just tons of different case studies. If you search like subfolder versus subdomain, all the math is just very clearly subfolder. So this one was surprising to me because I th- I know that you this used to be the case. Like if I went back 10 years, 2011, I knew for sure that subdomain was not good. I thought that around, let's just say five or six-ish years ago, that people were saying, I thought that people were saying that Google was smarter than that now and that they could figure it out. It sounds like Google's not quite as smart as, as we thought they were. Yeah, uh, effectively. Like it's been... As recent as a year or two, and I consistently have n- never really seen anything saying the opposite. I think you can be okay on a subdomain. Like it's not a critical error, but if it's somehow feasible for you and it's not a major, major headache, it's worth doing. Like HubSpot is the cautionary tale where you look at their site, they're so prominent. They're on blog.hubspot.com. They do quite fine, but that might be the exception rather than the rule. And you can still be successful, but everything we see seems to point to subfolder doing better. Got it. And that is the reverse proxy maneuver, I think is what we used to do, because certainly a lot of blogs are going to be on WordPress, not all, but if you put it on WordPress, you don't want it on your production Rails server or whatever. So you have to then do a reverse proxy and loop it through. Google that, folks, if you haven't seen it. (laughs) Second uh, SEO tip is when creating keyword-focused content, make the URL exactly the main keyword. You want to talk us through that? Yeah, so... Just to like give Google confidence that an article is about something, the more you focus on that thing in the URL structure, the more optimized 
and clear it'll be to Google. So an example of how someone could go a different direction, say you're trying to rank for podcasting tips, you would want to make that exactly the URL with say a hash, a hyphen in between those two words. But what people commonly would do would say podcasting hyphen tips for SaaS companies or something like that. And every single thing you add after the keyword could potentially dilute the meaning to Google. So it kind of focuses in the topic. So by really making exactly that main keyword, you uber focus it. And from our experience, have just seen better results doing that on a consistent basis. Got it. So even if my article, so if I was trying to rank for podcasting tips, but my article title was a lot longer than that, you're saying make the slug, this is a URL slug, right? Make that the, the keyword. Exactly. So the title itself can be a little more fluffy, definitely add click-through rate elements and brand voice. And you can even put something in front of the keyword. Generally would suggest putting the keyword as close to the front as possible, which is a more obvious tip. But ideally, the, the URL just doesn't need that in the same way. So that's a place where you can just get exact and then do the brand voice and click-through rate type stuff in the title itself. It's funny you say putting it towards the the front of the title. Little known fact, you may have heard this on this podcast or may may not have, but when Mike and I originally started this podcast, we were wondering, what do we name this thing? Because we're not going to talk about venture capital. I mean, it was still, it, SaaS wasn't as prominent as it was today. It really wasn't a big thing. And so we weren't going to call it the SaaS podcast or anything. And so we're saying, well, we, we want people to find it in search, in iTunes search, what's now Apple Podcasts. And the the search algorithm is not very sophisticated, we'll say. It wasn't sophisticated then, and it's probably not much much more today. So we wanted startups in the title, and we realized, I think we want startups right at the start, you know? So we were racking our brains for, what do we call startups? What? Startups today? Startups this week? You know, normally, if you have startups, like a lot of the startup podcasts have startup as in later in the title, but we wanted it earlier on. And it turns out Mike owned this domain already. It was in his GoDaddy account, startups for the rest of us. He registered it. So uh, it just stumbled in. So I, you know, I don't know. I don't have much evidence on whether that's helped us in search or not because there there's no analytics, right? But I do know if you type in startups, we used to rank in the top three for years in, in iTunes. I don't know if that was from reviews or from game in the, the title. Probably a combination. Well, both. Yeah. It always is, huh? The on-page and the off-page. Tip number three is almost every feature page that you have on your SaaS marketing site should aim to target keyword software, even if absurdly low search volume. So talk us through this and maybe give some examples so people understand what you're saying. Yeah, so something I've seen on some SaaS companies, especially just starting out, is a kind of common architecture. You have your homepage is kind of the generalized view of what your software does, and then you have the sub-feature pages. And I don't always see the sub-feature pages targeting keywords, but there's an opportunity there, even if the search volume is relatively low, to do that. And also speaks to, should that even be a feature page? Because someone has enough want to and demand for this that they've done a search for it. So an example of that might be podcasting software, might be the homepage, and then you'd have a sub-feature page on podcast analytics. So that could hypothetically be podcast analytics software. Some mistakes I see, someone might just say podcast analytics, when a lot of the time people do add software as a refining term. So by having that maybe in your main H1 and also your title tag closer to the front, as we kind of talked about, and always kind of searching that for each feature page, you should be able to at least optimize for potentially some long tail search volume. And if you're going up market and enterprise, that could be very valuable long tail search that gets you qualified audience. 
I'm going to be honest, this might be my favorite tip of the seven, that if I were a SaaS founder and today and didn't have this, this would at a minimum go on my to research and think about more to figure out what level of effort this would require to do. Because I am super intrigued by this idea of just having a few more, it's a few more elements of content. And what you're saying is even if the keyword volume is crazy low, you just have this really high likelihood of ranking very high for them. Is that right? Correct. And I, I like the, there's like product research in there too. Like if you're doing long tail on podcast analytics, they might add refining terms that should give you some hints about maybe what your product should have, or hypothetically, or at least they want. That could be elements you include on the landing page that drive conversion, all good things that can help you rank. And yeah, the lower competition they are, often the easier it'll be to rank for it. Yeah. And I've seen some sites do this. I believe... Yeah, so veed.io, V-E-E-D.io, one of the co-founders spoke at MicroConf Europe a few weeks ago, and I had gone to their, you know, their site just to check it out as I, as I do, because I wasn't familiar with the tool, and they have a bunch in their top nav, they have like basically what you're saying, or at least similar, they have a lot of actions like add image to video, add music to video, so I guess I don't have the software element of it, but yeah, no, screen recorder, software, webcam record. Right, yeah, 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 okay. They have it in there like pretty well. Do you think V.io is doing what you're saying? I guess I should pose it as a question to you. Yes, and th that's a good refinement, probably a qualifier. Maybe the better way to phrase it is it everything should have some search volume thoughtfulness to it. Not everything might actually make sense to include software, but everything should have some kind of significance. Like they have transcription services, that might not make sense, like convert audio to text just because of what they do. They probably don't make sense to add software at the end, but a lot of their pages do, to your point. So maybe that's the clarity on it is just look up what makes sense for each of those. Your fourth tip is it's really hard to rank for, and I'll put quotes around this, best X software. Try to do that indirectly instead of ranking directly. What do you mean by, by ranking? So let's say I'm podcasting software, like best podcasting software. If I try to rank number one for that, very difficult. So how do I rank indirectly for that? Yeah, the indirect fashion is thinking not, I'm trying to get my own website to show up for that, but rather, how do I get on all the sites already showing up for that? So open up that query, look at all the sites that are ranking and reach out to each of them, set up a profile, and then go and get reviews on those sites. How those best queries kind of operate is users most often want a unbiased third party to tell them what the best software is. So that's where being a first party actual provider of the software technically invalidates what people are trying to find with that search. It still happens, the very authoritative sites occasionally pull it off where they rank for that. But my general suggestion would be to try to rank for, say, podcasting software without best. They're not necessarily looking for that third party validation always with that search. And then on the best terms, get that review site listing and, and try to build on the ones that you think will be there for the long term. Very often, Captera, Software Advice, those sites are have stood the test of time and probably are showing up on your results as well. Which is interesting. You say they stood the test of time. It's interesting because usually I've seen Google in, in its vast knowledge and, and constant evolution, like Every two or three years, it decides to, you know, de-emphasize something and re-emphasize something else. And entire sites like Captera just get wiped out, right? I think of like Mahalo was Jason Calcanis's. What was that one? Like it was the do it, the, yeah. I don't know. 
eHow. eHow was one. WikiHow, there were a bunch. They used to rank all, and they're just gone from the SERPs. And I have to imagine they lost 80%, 90% of their traffic. But that has not happened to Captera. Do you know why that is? Uh, it's a good point. You made me have Googling this to kind of reconfirm that. I actually think they have lost a decent amount of headway. Not a huge amount, but they're not ranking as dominantly as they had before. To your point, I think it's all about what value you're bringing. Like eHow, they're not truly a credible source for a lot of things, like how to plan a wedding. You'd rather go to The Knot or Brides.com or something compared to eHow, right? And But software advice was good, but I think there's also... For sure, it was pay to play there. It still is, I think, on both of those. So that's probably something Google does not like that's effectively arbitrage still and maybe trying to find a solve for that. Tip number five is use on-page content marketing best practices and you link out to a blog post. You want to talk us through a couple of those. We'll obviously link this blog post up in the show notes, but let me know what are the four or five sub points there. Yeah, these would definitely be good to visualize, but at a high level, it's have large font. So 16 pixels plus is ideal. Generally recommend 18 pixels plus. Like that just makes it very readable and easy to to track to each line. Uh, I see gray on white font a lot. You want black on white most often. Like that it should be easy again to read. It shouldn't be difficult to do that. Why Some is people, that? Why does Google, Google care? Why would Google care if it's gray? because they care what users think. So that's a user. So this is more user experience that backs into rankings kind of thing. So we're trying to build pleasurable experiences and these are kind of just the the surface level characteristics of that. Got it, cool. So that was second one, black on white, not gray on white. Yeah, just or otherwise stated, very easy to read text. Like sometimes designers will do gray on white because it maybe looks okay, but then they you can't actually functionally read that very well. Another example is some people will have very wide column widths. So it's hard to track as a reader to the next line consistently if it's a wide column width. So if you're around 50 to 60 characters per line, so if your font size is larger, it makes it easier to do that tracking. So you maybe even thinking about that with your own column width, but this sometimes happens on feature pages. I'll see on these pages, people will put the text completely full width and it's just not a great reading experience. But even on blogs, it's hard to do that tracking and causes people to bounce, lower engagement signals, which costs you rankings. Other things are just generally low file size on images. Like increasingly, Google's getting smarter and trying to surface sites with really fast site speed. So getting all images under 200 kilobytes, I think makes sense. You can get even lower than that. Just whatever the lowest file size is that still retains image quality would be suggestion for your site. And then just make it scannable. So you should have line breaks, don't have huge paragraphs, make it easy to read, bullet points, call out sections, block quotes that look nice. All those things should kind of connect to a nice to read experience. I like what you're saying about the images being under 200K. It reminds me of our site that we host on Squarespace where the page speed is like 18% or 10%. But And when I go out and I look at all the Squarespace sites that we know of, their loading speed is garbage. And so I was asking on Twitter, like, is this a Squarespace thing or is this fixable? You know, can I hire someone? I'm willing to throw money at this because migrating off of Squarespace, I think we have five sites and they're all well-designed and there's tons of content. And it's like migrating is literally tens of thousands of dollars and months of work. And in asking around, 
most of their responses were, yes, come move to my platform or move to this other platform. And it's like, I mean, that, that's an answer, but that's not really an answer to, that's not the question that I was asking. <laughs> so, so this ties into page speed, right? I mean, that's what you're saying with the image size. Exactly. It's just, and it, for content marketing, especially making content visual is kind of another side product recommendation. So by nature, you should have images. And one way people mess that up is bigger images. And then you have a slow, unwieldy website as you spoke to. Do you know, I mean, it's hard to quantify these things, I realize, a big black box with hundreds of signals that Google's looking at, but do you have an idea of how much page speed matters? Like, is it a lot or a little? In, it's in context of the users you have. So if you have an audience who might be in the middle of nowhere with worse internet speeds, that could be a bigger factor. Also, we were speaking to the wedding market. If you're in a space that maybe is very highly visual, you might have to, by nature, build a very heavy page to give people inspiration for wedding ideas. So you would probably have a much worse experience if you weren't thoughtful about that than someone who was. But if you're just doing a text-based page on podcast listening numbers, maybe it's not the make or break of a great experience in the same way. So I don't think they necessarily say this site is fast and this one's slow, so rank it worse. But that thoughtfulness of like, what does it make sense? Does it make sense for this topic and where and who our users are and their internet speeds probably is where it can be bigger or larger, depending. Your sixth tip is to build passive link assets around keyword sets like, in quotes, keyword statistics and keyword trends. You want to talk us through that with an example? Yeah, so link building is still a very important piece of the SEO equation. And I, I'm guessing... It's hard for people on this that are listening to this to do that. So some kind of like low-hanging fruit I'd recommend for most people is to think about these passive link assets. It's what are things that people will naturally Google just to link to on their own websites. This is a very low-lift way to generate links to your website. And some common frameworks where people do that are statistics, trends, or pretty much any specific data point that someone would Google to grab and reference in your industry. So we're using podcasting consistently. That could be podcasting statistics, podcasting trends. Also, specific refinements of that are, say, podcast listening numbers. Those data points are things that bloggers, reporters will just Google and then go to that top result, grab that, or just link to that page. And that mm -hmm. will build authority and rankings for you, sometimes thousands of links to these pages that can power the rest of your software page rankings and, and traction without necessarily having to do that manual outreach each time. This feels like one of those that's like reverse engineering something someone stumbled upon accidentally, right? Like some site somewhere, whether it's Time Magazine or whether it's TechCrunch or whoever, had some statistics and some trends. And I bet you as, as an SEO have seen enough HREFs where you're like, how did they get this much domain authority? How much, how is there so <laughs> much page authority on this page? And it's like, wait a minute, these are, these are ranking high. Is that, is that effectively what, what happens? Exactly. It's just pattern matching that all of these look this way. You dig into it and they're generally low search volume. So that's the good news. More podcasts and things like this that people talk about, it's getting more competitive. But if it's relevant for you, I would suggest that very cautiously, like make it make sense for you. So don't do every statistics post under the sun. But if you're a podcasting software, yeah, you should have those podcasting topics on your site. And our seventh and final tip is to answer keyword questions immediately right after the H1 with things like keyword is or answer in a way that is super visible to readers. So I think you're definitely going to need an example for this one. And then let's explain why this works. 
Yeah, so a kind of thematic thing to think about with search is low time to value. You wanna have lowest time to value possible with your content. So most times when someone is asking a question such as what is UX research or what is the Amazon affiliate commission rate, they wanna get that specific answer immediately. So a mistake people make, well, they'll, they'll make the post that and then they'll decide they need this multi-thousand word guide when most often someone just wants that definition. So this is one reason why you see now those answer boxes when you Google things, most often definitions, where Google is showing text uh, above the fold. And that I think is the hint that they know users want these things. So us, I think you kind of, in a perfect world, you'd love someone to read all 3,000 words, but reality is we just have to deal with what we have and what users want. And I think that's solving the answer immediately. So an example here is if your post title was what is UX research, most often our recommendation would be to have to answer that immediately. So you would say right after the post title, UX research is blank. And that will help Google understand if you think about like how a robot would think about this, that would give them confidence that this is a definition for that term. And if it's very visible, even better, because that's good for users also. So I've seen people do this in subheaders where the post title might be, what is UX research, the complete guide? And then a subheader, they'll define it. Then they'll go into more depth under that. So make it visible, immediately answer it, structure it in a way that a robot could understand it, and you'll benefit both in rankings and potentially getting those quick answers as well. So the the, the quick answers are when they embed the answer at the top of the page, right above the first SERP, first search Correct. result. Okay. Yeah. So it's yeah we us as SEOs and site owners never were huge fans of that, but it's kind of nature of the beast and got to play to win. So got to do what they are telling us to do. So as we wrap up, I'm curious, you know, you've obviously been doing SEO for a long time. You see a big swath of, of companies of all types, right? I mean, SaaS is just one of the many, the many type of companies is trying to do this. As you've worked, you know, you've worked with our first three batches of tiny seed, which I'm, so I'm always trying to do mental math. We're about to, about to find the first, the 59th company. So like 40, 40 plus tiny seed companies, right? You've in essence talked through because you do some mentor calls and then I know you do some one-on-one -on -one stuff. Are there things specific to SaaS that I guess they're different than maybe if you're doing a D to C or whatever else? I mean, I think you've, you've called out a couple of those already here, right? For having all the feature pages, you know, that would, that would really only be um, SaaS, but any other stuff that you see commonly come up uh, for those companies? Yeah, uh, some of these are definitely those things with the software queries trying to rank for the first party versions. Some things on the blogs I see consistently, and you you probably know some of this as well. It's, it might be more of a content marketing best practice, but say having a sticky nav that follows you on the blog with a contrasting button in the top right that's like sign up or get a demo, et cetera. That is generally conversion rate best practice to have that there. So that's something we increasingly are recommending to specifically our SaaS clients, although it sometimes works in D2C as well. Uh, versus topics, alternative topics are huge for search and SaaS. Like search volume will be low, but we have clients who have like 200 searches over three months and generate 200,000 in sales from a versus article. So those you should do every day, <laughs> every time. Yeah, we do see a lot of our companies come in without them, and that's a recommendation folks make, and I, I think there is value. It's that it's that weird low volume, super high converting stuff that I think people sometimes ignore, right? Exactly. Cool. So, Ross, thanks so much for you know for coming on the show today. If folks want to keep up with you on Twitter, you're Ross Hudgens. It's H-U-D. 
G-E-N-S, and you're also on LinkedIn. And of course, Siege Media is the agency you run and uh, siegemedia.com, pretty easy to uh, reach you there. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. It's been great. Thanks again for joining me this week. It's great to be in your earbuds. I'm so enjoying this podcast and putting the content together and having varied episode types and varied content types. And I'm glad you're joining me every week. If you're not already subscribed, please do. If you haven't mentioned at Startups Pod, thanked at Startups Pod on Twitter, I'd really appreciate it. It helps spread the word. And, you know, me and my team here are spending a lot of time and effort to put these episodes together and to try to provide value for you and all the other bootstrapped and mostly bootstrapped founders in the world. So anything you could do to get back, I'd really appreciate. And with that, I'll let you go this week and I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. 